Not too long ago, we all watched in anticipation news about five people who were aboard a small submarine entitled the Titan, who was in a mission to explore the Titanic, which lay on the ocean floor about two and a half miles down in the ocean. The news finally came back that there was an explosion or implosion and all five lives had been lost. What is, has come to surface though, back in 2019, the owner of the company, his name is Russ Stockton, a man who is considered to be one of the world's experts in submarines, went down in this very submarine and after he, after he went down in it, he wrote Russ Stockton, here is the email, that portion of the email that he sent him. He says, what we heard, in my opinion, sounded like flaws or defects in one area being acted on by the tremendous pressures and being crushed or damaged. A useful thought exercise here would be to imagine the removal of the variables of the investors, the eager, the eager mission scientists, your team hungry for success, the press releases already announcing the summer's dive schedule. Imagine this project was self-funded and on your own schedule. Would you consider taking dozens of other people to the Titanic before you truly knew the source of those sounds? He did. And those sounds indicated a serious problem that took the lives of those five people. One th thing that is clear here and one thing that is clear in life, it's very difficult for some people to let other people speak into their life, to hear advice, to recognize and identify a problem, acknowledge mistakes. That's almost impossible for some people. But if we want to grow, if we want to mature, if we want God's blessings in our life, I would say one of the greatest things that we can do is learn to acknowledge our own mistakes. If we don't, we will repeat them. And the damage seems to get worse each time. We are in a study of the book of 1 Samuel, and Saul is the principal character at this part of the book. And this is Saul's problem. He has difficulty acknowledging his mistakes. He certainly has difficulty letting other people speak into his life, and he seems to repeat the same mistakes over because he's not learning from them. Stubbornness, arrogance, those are some of the reasons why people fail to learn from their mistakes and tend to blame other people for what is clearly their fault. That is a description of Saul. One of the most shocking moments so far in the book of 1 Samuel has been an encounter with the prophet Samuel and Saul where Samuel confronted him and rebuked him for his unwillingness to obey God. Listen to these words. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Now, that was very harsh on Samuel's part. And if you just listened to that, you would tend to have sympathy for Saul. But the problem is, this is an ongoing problem with Saul. And it had been going on to that point, And it continues afterwards. 
The study of Saul is very relevant for us because this problem is very widespread in humanity, even in Christians today. The contrasting conduct of Saul and his son Jonathan could not be more stark. In 1 Samuel 14, 6, here gives you a description of Jonathan's faith. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. Jonathan had what Saul did not have. This view of Saul, the way he saw the world, is very uh, prevalent view today. Saul had this view that his relationship with God should be separated from him being king. So, for instance, he might understand that Samuel told him to follow a certain instructions and that the instructions came from God. But Saul had the idea that if he felt pressured, if the circumstances changed, that he should make a different decision and take a different direction, regardless of what Samuel had said, because he felt as if that's what he should do. Today, there's a real prevalent view in our culture that faith and God is a very good thing. Worship is a very good thing. And politics, for instance, is, uh, is how we run our lives and our country. But the two should never mix. For instance, if you're very religious, that should disqualify you from ever being in politics. You shouldn't be able to speak about politics because your faith and your religion would influence your decisions. That's one of the greatest ways that God is disregarded today in our culture. And it was what Saul was doing in his time, disregarding God, because when he came to a very difficult time, circumstances were pressuring him, he would rely on his own intelligence, his own ingenuity to solve the problem. It never did solve the problem. It made things worse, and it does the same things for us today. One of the main themes of Saul's life is his foolishness of disobeying God. We left the account the last time we talked with Jonathan taking this enormous step of faith where just he and his armor bearer, not arrogantly, but humbly asking God to give them confirmation if they should attack a garrison. God gave them a confirmation. They attacked. There was 20 of the enemy that fell in their path, and it caused this enormous panic for the whole army. And they fled before the Israelites. So most of the battle was actually over, and the Israelites had not actually done anything except kind of watch it. But there was still, uh, there was still some mop-up work, some battle to be fought. Saul, at this point, with his habit of making his, his self-reliant decisions instead of actually calling on God, seeking God, makes an oath, a very foolish oath. Actually, a, it would be utter stupidity what he did at this point. The battle is primarily won. Here it is in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound... So what I'm actually reading here, the writer, let me explain, the writer does what, what is it's a literary technique where he's going back in time to prepare us for what actually happened a little bit later. So right after Jonathan attacked that garrison that I spoke about, the, the soldiers that Saul had had been deserting him. His army of 3,000 had gone down to 600. 
And that is, this is the moment that the narrator wants us to understand. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself of my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. So this actually happens before the Philistines have panicked and before they learn of what Jonathan did. Oh, this sounds like the, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. If you have an army and you actually want them to go out and fight and you tell them nobody's eating. <laughs> Basic understanding is if you're going to go out and exert all of this energy in battle or work, you need food to sustain yourself. Saul does the opposite. And his words here, to avenge myself. Saul makes everything about himself. Very egocentric person. And his words betray him. So what he's concerned about is more desertion. So he says, I don't want anybody eating until I avenge myself. Nobody take a bite until we actually have a total victory over the enemy. Saul makes an impulsive decision. He does this several times in the story here, these impulsive decisions. Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. He's prone to make these decisions and impose drastic measures. Great contrast in, between him and his son Jonathan. When Jonathan was considering attacking this Philistine garrison, notice his manner of thinking it out and deciding what to do. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord tells you he is not impulsive here. He's thinking, he's praying, he's asking God for guidance. He goes on and tells us about the confirmation. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now here's Saul, the man who did not obey God when he was told to wait for Samuel, made no reference to God, has no confidence in God, but now he's obsessed with avenging himself. Impulsivity is a problem for any of us. If we make impulsive decisions in marriage, it doesn't work. If you make impulsive decisions in parenting, it certainly doesn't work. In life or work, if you make impulsive decisions, they will usually set you back. How much better it is to be thoughtful and prayerful when we make our decision than ask God to give us guidance, even thinking it out and sometimes getting counsel. The troops, of course, because they haven't been allowed to eat, are hungry, of course. Verse 25, the entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. So as I've said, this has to be a ridiculous thing. These guys are hungry, going out to do battle because Saul has pronounced this oath. But when he pronounced it, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they hadn't heard anything about this oath. So Jonathan and his armor bearer are now back with the soldiers. Verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. So he perked up and you could actually see the difference in his face. Then one of the soldiers told him, your father bound the army under a strict oath saying, curse be anyone who eats food today. 
This is why the men are faint. So the utter stupidity of his father's oath here was immediately clear to Jonathan. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from the enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been greater? Common sense observation. We've already noted the tension between Saul and Jonathan is there. It seems to be getting greater. Saul, who does not have the tendency to obey God, doesn't have confidence in God, and devises this idiotic plan as a way of conquering the enemy. And Jonathan, who confidently declares uh, defeat over the enemy, and he acknowledges that this makes no sense. Why would my father put all of this army going to battle under an oath not to eat? The fighting continued, however, and the Philistines were beaten back, mostly because they were in a panic. The Israelites followed them. And it says, that day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. Now from this oath come some unintended consequences. Impulsivity always brings unintended consequences. I remember this guy getting upset at his daughter because she was rebellious, obviously getting under his skin. And he immediately said, if I hear that again, I'm, I'm taking your door off. So she just said it again. So the guy takes the door off, comes in with a hammer and, and all his tools, pulls the door off. Later, he realizes that was dumb, but he can't back down. Impulsive decisions usually bring unintended consequences. So they, the army here, the Israelite army, drives the Philistines back, and there's, there's victory. Verse 32, they pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Ow, they're starving. And now there is the plunder of the battle. And so these people are going to eat and this frantic for food. They grab whatever they're finding and they're satisfying their, their hunger. Here are the unintended consequences. Verse 35, then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first time he had done this. So the, the Bible and the Old Testament, all the way from the days of Noah, had instructed to not eat meat with blood in it. All of our meat in the grocery stores is drained. We don't tend to eat meat with blood in it. This was actually for safety more than anything else that was given to the Israelites. But in their hunger, they're eating. Now, what is so ironic about Saul here, this is a guy who doesn't obey, who doesn't pray, doesn't ask God for guidance and direction. When these unintended consequences of the people are eating the meat with blood in it because they're starving to death, he decides to be very, very religious and say that they're sinning. He sets up an altar. He often likes to play the priest. But the problem is he's the one who caused this problem in the first place. The people know it. Everybody knows it, but him. 
But this will be very difficult for Saul because he refuses to own his own mistakes when he's caused the whole problem in the first place. So Saul makes this proposal. He seems to think that if there is a problem, it's got to be somebody else's fault. It doesn't even occur to him that it could be his fault. In verse 36, Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn and let us not leave one of them alive. There's no reference to God there, very different than what Jonathan had said. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You never rarely ever see Saul praying, asking for guidance. Only after, every, after there's a big problem, Saul prays. Reminds me a lot of Christians. They decide to pray when they're backed into a corner and they've tried everything and there's nothing left. Well, I should pray about this. Saul's whole behavior is very relevant for a lot of us today. So when he says, let's go after them, we're, gonna, we're just going to go after them to the last man. There's not a lot of enthusiasm here from the soldiers. They say, do whatever seems best to you, they replied. Now, at this point, Saul decides to seek God. We, we could call it a delayed prayer or delayed inquiry from the Lord. Verse 36, but the priest said, let us inquire of God. And Saul says, oh, that's a good idea. We should do that. He's about 10 miles late on this desire. It's never his first response. Prayer should always be our first response, not out of habit necessarily, but because that's where we should go to seek God. We would avoid so many of our problems by simply going to God first asking for his guidance. Sometimes the thing God would guide us to do is nothing. I'm going over there and I'm going to, and God might say, no, you're not. And the whole problem would be avoided. It's amazing if we went to God first and God has got, Saul does not do that. He only does it now because the priest comes to him and he says, all right, verse 37. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand and notice what it says, but God did not answer him that day. Saul's going to get two silence, silence here, one from God and one from his men. Saul's inquiry in all probability was done. The priest has this elaborate close. And there is, it had breast pockets and there was a thing called a urim and thurim. We don't know exactly what they were, probably some stones inside a pocket. And it worked much like flipping a coin, heads or tails. That's all probability, but you'll see what, as I read on what I mean. In verse 37, Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hands? But God did not answer him that day. Samuel had warned him that if he disobeyed God and continued to disobey God, God would stop speaking to him. And God is saying, why should I talk to you? You never do what I say anyway. This is Samuel's words. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Saul's capacity to commit blunders here continues to grow. In verse 38, Saul therefore said, come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. So the irony here is very great. We don't have to look very far to find out where the sin is, but Saul's never going to look to himself. Verse 39, 
as surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan. So he, he seems to have some idea who's at fault here or who he thinks is at fault for breaking his oath. But not one of them said a word. So silence from God, silence from the men. The very thing that the oath was designed to avoid to keep the people from deserting, it hasn't worked. The people have deserted him. Maybe physically they're there, but they have deserted. They don't answer a word. Saul is doubling down on his stupidity here, refusing to acknowledge his own shortcomings because of his stubbornness. He now looks to blame his own son, Saul. How incredibly arrogant. In verse 40, Saul then said to the Israelites, you stand over there and I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Not a lot of enthusiasm there. Verse 41, then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is with me or my son Jonathan, respond with the Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with the Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. This is really a tragic scene which shows you how progressively out of touch Saul has grown. He is to the point now where he is actually willing to have his own son, Jonathan, put to death when Jonathan is the one who has brought about the victory. The entire victory of the Philistine army is due to Jonathan's faith and courage. And here Jonathan is about to be put to death. 43, this is Saul's question. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. It's reminiscent. Um, Samuel had interrogated Saul. Saul seems to be interrogating his son the same way Samuel had interrogated him. We, we call this in, in psychology projection. So let's say the guy has an argument with his wife and he's angry. He leaves and he goes outside and kicks the dog. So Saul feels very put down by Samuel. So he looks for someone to let all this rage out on, which happens to be his son. Jonathan's answer. It definitely highlights the stupidity of Saul in this moment. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Or in other words, here's the extent of my crime. I tasted some honey. I didn't know about your oath, but if the death penalty is what you want to do, go ahead, put me to death. Here's Saul's verdict. Saul said, my God, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan for tasting the honey. And he did not know the oath. This is the greatest deterioration of Saul. We have watched him progressively in what has been a few chapters, happens to be years for us. But he has devised a crazy plan to try to fight the enemy by starving his troops, place them under this oath. And when they started to have success, I'm assuming the oath expired and they were starting to eat, but then he holds their feet to the fire because they, they didn't take time to hold all, you know, hang all the animals and let the blood drain for 24 hours. 
And then he gets to the bottom of finding out who ate honey, turns out to be his son. Yeah, this guy has really gone downhill. And it all starts with these basic principles that I'm talking about. The lack of a priority to love God, follow God, obey God. The insincerity to recognize I make mistakes. What are they? How can I avoid making the same mistake all over again? To own my own mistakes, admit them, you see a total refusal on, on Saul's part. So he's willing to put his own son, this brave young man, but the men come to Jonathan's aid. But the men said to Jonathan, should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. But the real problem is being ignored. The real problem is Saul. When Saul was chosen king, he was given a specific order to fight the Philistines, that God would grant them deliverance. But he has never really done that. Even this battle is not his initiative. It came from Jonathan. In verse 46, Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. Jonathan has previously stated how much greater the victory would have been if the men hadn't been starved to death and they could have fought. In verse 52, we get a little bit of the legacy of Saul. It says, All the days of Saul there was bitter war with the Philistines, and whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. That's what Samuel predicted, that he would take all the, all the young men into his army. That's what kings do. But there's not a more tragic figure in all the Bible, one who had all the potential in the world to be a real hero of God, that he was so self-absorbed, so egocentric, so stubborn, so arrogant, that he shut himself off from God, and he shut himself off from other people. He's a tragic pitcher. But what he is, is Saul is, has something of all of us. Our tendency to disobey God, even when we know that's what we should do. If it wasn't for God's grace, we would be cut off. What we need more than anything is this total commitment to God's word. We are seeing in our culture today people who knowingly disobey God's word, but they have rationalized it doesn't really apply. This is what Saul does. That's why the story of Saul is so very relevant today. Now, people who tend to take God's word and pick and choose what they want and throw away what they don't want are in a very dangerous position. And someday, they'll wind up like Saul with a messed up life. Jesus warned us about that because the ultimate example for all of us is Jesus. And when he gave the greatest sermon that's ever been given, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, he ended the sermon with this parable. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. So few words, and yet so much is said in that small parable. Jesus says, the man or the woman who takes my words 
puts them into practice. That's, that's the key thing right there. He didn't say, the man or woman who takes some of my ideas rejects the other ones, but who takes, who embraces God's word and puts it into practice. Your life is compared to someone who builds their house on solid rock. So when the storm comes, the house is still standing compared to the person who builds their house on sand. Have you seen these pictures of people where the house is being swept down the river or like in California on a mountainside where the, you know, a mudslide? Most of those places, especially in California, the houses should have never been built there in the first place. They're prohibitive lands to build, but because people want the high tax, the high taxes coming in the communities, they allow people to build up on these mountains. And when these huge storm comes, these multi-million dollar houses, they just go down. But it is, a, it is a picture of what happens to the life that doesn't have the foundation in God's word. I have four principles here that sum up everything I've talked about today. Number one, learn to obey God even when it doesn't make sense. This is Saul's problem. He could obey God if everything, every little duck was in row, every little piece of the puzzle was there. Well, who couldn't obey God? When you feel great, all the circumstances line up, everything comes together. No. The question is, is your commitment great enough to obey God even when it doesn't make sense? Well, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm not going to do that then you're going to be like Saul. Secondly, learn to admit your mistakes and own them. This is the hardest part. It was hard for Saul. He never did it. It's hard for most of us. It's hard for me. It's hard for all of us to acknowledge, you know what? That's a mistake. That's a problem I have. That's a weakness I have. I need to acknowledge it. I need to apologize when I do it. I need to own this mistake. This begins to change your life. Saul never did it. And that's why he's a tragic figure of Scripture. But we need to look at him to learn what he didn't do. Number three, learn to be thoughtful and prayerful and not impulsive. This would be great. It helps out so much in parenting because kids can take you over the edge, I know. As they get older, especially you get a kid with a smart mouth, but that's your fault for letting it happen. And then when they get older and older, and then you make some impulsive decision. All right, you go in your room, you come out next year. All right, I'm taking that phone away and I'm throwing it in the river. You make impulsive decisions that you later regret. Impulsive decisions in marriage and parenting. Maybe you tell your boss some impulsive decision and then you find yourself without a job the next day. How'd that work out? Well, not too good. Learning to be thoughtful and prayerful. This makes all the difference in the world. There's nothing wrong with saying, well, I need to think about this. I need to pray about this. What are you going to do? There's nothing wrong with telling your kids. Yeah, your mother and I are going to talk about this. I'm going to pray about this. We'll figure out what, what needs to be done. Impulsively, you won't know what to do. Lastly, don't worry about your reputation. Let God take care of it. Saul constantly worried about what people thought of him. The reason he disobeyed God, 
the, prior, the first time when Samuel told him to wait until he got there. You do not do anything until I get there. And then the Philistine army was massing. The people were wondering what was going to happen. He actually says, I was worried about what the people would think, what the elders would think. We are concerned about how we look, our image, what people think of us. But we should be more concerned about what God thinks of us than any person. Let me repeat them. Learn to obey God even when it doesn't make sense. Learn to admit your mistakes and own them. Learn to be thoughtful and prayerful and not impulsive. Don't worry about your reputation. Let God take care of it. 